Most people can recognize that even moving into a new home is completely life-changing, right? Like changing your surroundings or moving to a different city or moving to a different country. That That is pretty obvious. Everyone can acknowledge that their environment really affects them. Welcome back. This week, a good friend of mine returns for the 200th time. I don't know how many times she's been on, but it's a bunch. And it's my dear friend, Angie. She is a architect, interior designer, and she's come to every space I've ever lived in and helped me figure out how to set it up, how to use the ancient practice of feng shui to tailor my space to not only my individual needs, but also to improve different areas of my life using something called the Bagua map, which we go over in this episode. And you can hear her live in person at my apartment telling me exactly what to do and learning about what's going on with me in a very long episode that we aired earlier this year. So this is a little bit of a follow-up from that. We kind of go over how some of those adjustments and moving my furniture played out and what that has been like for me in the months since. So if you listen to that episode, you'll find this to be a compliment to that. And if you didn't, no problem, just go on listening to this one. It's not like you're gonna be confused or anything. But in this episode, she answers some questions from friends of mine and friends of ours and goes over everything from how to adjust and compromise when you're merging styles with a partner, as well as what to do when you're wanting a partner and how to set up your home and space more aptly to promote that and <laughs> invite someone and more more people or friendship or community or whatever it is that you're wanting. And one of the questions that I asked her that came from a friend of mine is apparently the question that she gets asked most often, which is some version of what do I do when I move in with a partner and, you know, the contrast between familiarity and consistency to novelty and wanting frequent change. And she goes into what to do in that situation as well as so much more. She has a new book out called Mindful Homes. Her first book was called Holistic Spaces, and she's been practicing feng shui and interior design and designing spaces since 1999. She's been featured everywhere from the New York Times to Domino Magazine. She's a New York State registered architect, and she is actually the co-founder of a feng shui school, which I asked her about in this because I'm so into feng shui, I might go. <laughs> anyway, we talk about all of that and so much more you'll hear now. Here's my conversation with Angie. Thank you so much for being here. There are so many podcasts and so I am honored. Okay. My friend Angie is back on the program for the, I don't know how many times I was looking through my Google drive to see my preparation for previous podcasts with you. And they date back to 2014. So Wow. Yes. It was a long time ago. A very long time ago before your first book, 
which was called Holistic Spaces, right? Yes. And now I'm holding in my hand your second book, which is so cool. I I really like I was so happy when I when I got this because it's so different from your first book. It's so visual and has so much information and goes deeper on a lot of the things that I've learned from you over the years, over the last nine years plus. And I'm just stoked about this book and and that you're that you're back here. Thank you so much. It's been so great. And you know, actually, I just noticed because people have been leaving some reviews on my podcast. People find the podcasts that I've done with you, like where we've reviewed your home. They love those the most where we where we look at your home and we do like a mini consultation for you. And I think it's probably also super interesting to see how how it changes from home to home over the years. Because 2014, that's nine years, right? Mm-hmm. So it's so long ago. I know. We're almost going to have our, what is that, silver anniversary? <laughs> what is 10 years? I don't know. But you know what I was literally doing before you, before we got on this call? I was, I was actually cleaning some silver jewelry that had tarnished. And some of this jewelry is so old that I've had since I was in college. And the silver cleaner smelled so bad, I thought I was going to throw up. But it's so nice because I was like, I'm looking at this silver jewelry and it's it looks so different than it because it was it's been tarnished and black for so long. In any case, it's to celebrate our anniversary. I decided to clean yeah. up my silver jewelry. <laughs> Maybe our relationship too just needs a bit of just need the coat of paint or, or polish. Pour the yeah, smelling a polish. polish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I, the last time you were on the podcast was the very end of twenty twenty two. I think I aired it. Yeah, I aired it at the beginning of this year, but we recorded it at the end of last year. And it was, and you you put a, a little portion of it on, on your show too, but we did what we do best. <laughs> Had you come over to my apartment, you were in LA and we said this then, but you've come to every single one of my spaces on Zoom when I lived in Michigan or at the time Skype <laughs> and you gave feng shui adjustments and interior design adjustments and you came to my place in New York City and and did that in the East Village and then here and and it was actually the second time you you did that here you did one early in the pandemic when I first moved in here where I did the we talked about this back then but I I did that episode sitting on the ground because I had no furniture <laughs> and you told me how to lay it out and where to put things and I didn't believe you about certain things and took me took me 2 years but then when you were here we made a lot of big adjustments i think for what you can do in a studio apartment i feel like we did we did some big ones and yeah it, i get messages about that episode because i think i was in a really kind of goofy place because i felt really comfortable with you and i kind of was just like in a really intense life moment and just feeling pretty emotional and uncertain and i think you were kind of we were both feeling pretty overwhelmed it was just so good to see my friend and so you got here and we sat down and drank tea and just kind of vented with each other and debriefed and then i was like oh well we got to do this work thing now we got to do this <laughs> podcast and and i but i was already really loose and just with you so it was just a full and i pretty much kept it all in i think i cut out a few bits that were a bit too personal and where i use names <laughs> but the rest of it's all there and i i get message i just somebody just talked to me about it 2 days ago and and, you know that came out months and months ago but as much as i was like oh god this is a lot of me and this is not a u- this is not a usual interview but what you did walking around with the microphone in my apartment and telling me about 
what this means and asking me questions and getting to see you in action and getting to see feng shui in practice, I think is actually interesting, I I hope, but it is to me. What did that person say uh, earlier this week? Oh, they were asking me about they well, they asked me about moving my bed, like if I noticed a difference, because Mm -hmm. that was the big thing we did for for anyone listening who didn't listen to that episode. I live in a studio apartment. That's a box shape. Would you call that? Yeah, it's like a just a square. Yeah, it's very square. And my bed was by the door, the front door, and the couch was further in close to the the wall at the end of the apartment. And I said to Angie, I was like, yeah, it just has to be like that. That's what the last person has. It It doesn't make sense to have it the other way because then your bed is like closer to the kitchen and just trust, trust me, there's nothing we can do. It cannot be done. <laughs> like, And when you were on Zoom, you were kind of like, okay, like there's, and I swear you walked in here and the second you walked in here, you're like, she's going to say no, but like, we got to change the bed. Was that your thought? Yeah, I think so. Cause there's so much about your bed and it's, it's still there, right? You still have it in the... Did you move it back or no? No, it's, still- it's never moving. It's never moving. Okay, I, I listen and, to everything you tell me. And and has anything happened? I mean, not not yet, but <laughs> I'm optimistic. Okay. okay. I mean, what do you mean? Is any? I mean, lots has happened. Well, I don't know. No, well, I didn't. I'm just checking in to just checking in to see if any anything of note occurred since since then. You sound you sound like my uncle. He he calls me like once a year, right? He calls me on my birthday. Mm-hmm. It was just my birthday. And he goes through like, you know, the normal uncle questions, right? It's like, and I, you know, I ask him stuff too. How's golf? How's like everybody of his that I know? And then I, once I exhaust those, he starts asking me a couple of things, you know, how, how's work? How, you know, you got, you know, it's, it's all right, Uncle Gary. And then, and then the last question he always, asks, he never, ever asks about friends, which is too bad because that's the one area I excel in. But the the question he does ask me always is, so is there anybody special in your life? <laughs> and I always say to him, I mean, lots of special people. Uncle Gary. Is there anyone special in your life, Katie? <laughs> no, I'll, I'll tell you what I told Uncle Gary. Lots of special people, but but no one of note. <laughs> uh, so nobody of note. Well, we'll see. We'll see. And we also carried out we also carried out a rug. Mm-hmm. And, and by moving your bed, we also moved a sofa. Mm-hmm. So you have a little bit of a different perspective in your in your studio apartment. So we'll see how it goes. But it sounds like you're you're um, more cheerful and more and a little a little more settled than you were last time we saw each other. Yeah, and I I I was thinking about this, and the maybe bleak thing about it is that nothing's changed, like situationally, financially, work wise, relationally, even like really not much has changed at all but maybe my perspective shifted or i just accepted it or i just decided like okay this is how it is and i i don't want to miss it you know because the reality is there are of course good things and there's contrast and like like this week for instance it was very full like the week before, I didn't really have much on my calendar. There's always like so much I need to do, but I didn't have that much going on. But this week, I had, I got invited to this fun thing on the West Side with Christine. And then I had a hike with someone on Wednesday. And then today, I had a, a fancy breakfast that I got to be my friend Heidi's plus one to. And then I had this conversation with you that I was stoked about. And then tomorrow, I have 
something in the morning I'm excited about. I'm excited to work at the shop. And then it's my friend's uh, ceramic show on Saturday. And I have a fun dinner on Saturday night. Like it's like packed, but it's all, I like looked at my phone schedule for the week and I was like, sick. Like I'm actually stoked to do every single thing on here. And I think I would have looked at that before as like, that's going to take me away from time to like potentially answer an email or like do all of these processes that I need to do. But like, even if I, or work on my writing or whatever, and it's true, it did, like I didn't get anything done and I'm backed up, but it's just kind of like, all right, well, that is what it is. And I could either miss this stuff too, because I'm stressed about that, or I could just kind of like let it, I'm, I guess I'm just diverting the work to an alternative time, but it's better to be fully in what I'm doing than half trying to work and half trying to be in my life. I don't know. Does that make sense? Or do you relate to that? Like as someone who has a lot to do at all times? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's very easy for us to think that all the tasks that we have in our life, are it's that those things are more important than just living life. And answering an email isn't really that important, right? And somehow we've gotten to this place in the world where everyone expects you to answer an email within minutes or, you know, text messages or whatever. So, so there's, it, it's just exhausting and, and it's overwhelming and we don't have to subscribe to it. So good for you the, for, do, for just enjoying yourself and, and doing things that are fulfilling rather than feeling like you have to check everything off your list. Cause I've been, I've, yes, I've been trying to do that as well. Like really become less busy. Cause I, I think you you are one of the few people I know that is maybe busier than I am. <laughs> you because you always have a lot. You're always like juggling so much stuff, and it's so challenging that uh, to live life like that. So I'm really glad that both of us are looking to spend more time doing things that don't have to be productive. But it's also like, what is productive? Because that that was what I was thinking a little bit. Like we've spoken about this many times, but you and I used to, when we both lived in New York, go to a meditation class lecture at the Rubin Museum in the middle of the day on a Wednesday. And I could say that that was like inconvenient because it's in the middle of the day and we're traveling there. But like, that was really important to me. And I think there's other things too, where even like, today, this this week, going to these events that I was invited to with my friends, like, who's to say that that's not productive of like the person I met there, the idea that came into my brain from, you know, seeing that or the conversation I had with my friends. Sometimes I'm like, more will actually come from that than me trying and forcing or sending an email or asking like, I usually don't get anywhere with that. Everything good that's happened to me, like falls into my lap, you know, and when I try really hard, nothing really comes from that. Do you feel that way? Yeah, I do actually feel that way because there's a lot of opportunities that I've had that like for instance even just like having written two books or having a podcast or being on being interviewed for podcasts or teaching or being a business owner none of these things were things that I want like I wanted to do. I never aspired to do them necessarily, but they kind of fell into my lap. But once I started to pursue things that brought me joy, these opportunities came up in which I was asked to, you know, start speaking more and and start writing more. And then I naturally that naturally led me to develop those those talents or those skills. Like I I 
used to be petrified of writing. Like I would sit in front of, of a blank screen, you know, with the cursor just blinking at me and have no idea what to write and just rewrite the same first sentence over and over again. And because I've been asked to write so much, first it was like with blogs from my own blog and then blog, other people's blogs and then the spruce and then other publications. Then, you know, and then I wrote my first book. And that's an interesting experience too, because I don't know if you felt like this with your first book, but it was so long ago because yours, because we wrote, our, I think you wrote your book before I wrote my first book. Actually, you wrote your book around the just after we we met, I think. Mm-hmm. And so it must be like, you know, almost 10 years, right? I like wrote that book, but I wasn't confident at all about writing. I was, I just only felt confident enough to tell people how to do things. Like, this is how you fix your feng shui. This is how you do A, B, and C and be really super instructional. And, um, and it's changed so much that I, cause I've been asked to talk about feng shui and write about feng shui and write about my life so much that now, like, you know, when I wrote this book, it, it was not necessarily a productive thing, but it was just that I had cultivated so much of my own unique wisdom around what I was teaching that I felt like it was, there was a lot to be said that had not been said before. I read a little bit about this in the book and I've heard you talk about managing anxiety. Like I think you're talking about managing your nervous system. And I think spaces in feng shui have the ability to make such an impact on us that way. And I only know that because of you. Can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about anxiety and the connection between... Like one thing I heard you say is that when you have space, like you were talking about going on a vacation and then the Mm. anxiety rushed in. Mm -hmm. So... What are, you know, what are your ways of managing that and how can feng shui potentially help? So it's interesting because a lot of people, I think a lot of people are suffering from anxiety right now. And it, and it does tie back to what you're saying before about feeling like you need to do something and ha- having some kind of fear. Anxiety is having fear about something that may happen in the future. Worrying about something that may or may not happen in the future. and we get worried about that. And then we start thinking, what if this could happen? What if that could happen? And so it might not seem like it may, like your your home would affect that, but it does because there's something like really simple in feng shui called the commanding position, which we, you know, you and I have talked about before, where you look at how you position yourself in relationship to the door of your space. So when you're cooking at your stove or when you're lying in bed or if you're sitting at your desk working or sitting at your wherever you your workspace working ideally you want to be able to see the door without directly being in line with the door and what that does is because we're humans that are very frontally focused we're very dependent on our vision right and we really want we have an allegiance to the front of our body we pay more attention to what's happening in front of our body not as much as what's in back or to the sides like we forget that we have we have like a three dimensional world around us, but because we're so frontally focused, if you can't see the door or you can't see where the energy or chi or where people could come into your space, that creates the level of stress and anxiety because then it it puts you in that fight or flight response because you don't know what's coming to you. So then you're you're on a very subtle level or on an extreme level, extreme level anticipating like who or what or something that could possibly come up behind you. So you don't know what's ahead of what's straight in front of you. So by simply shifting your perspective, like shifting your position so you can see what's coming to you, which may literally mean in your home, changing your 
positioned so you can literally see the door that works in an energetic way as well as in, in the physical realm. You can physically see who's coming into your space so your body can relax, but also metaphorically, you know that you are putting yourself in a position where you can see what's coming to you and you don't have to have anxiety and worry about what the future could possibly hold for you. Yeah. And for instance, my stove cannot be, I cannot see the door. So I have a adjustment that you put in for me, which is a mirror. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we have that. We had it. We had you put a little convex mirror. So like a little rear view mirror that like where it's a dome and we place that at your stove so that when you're, you are standing at your stove because you can't easily move your stove, right? That you could see behind you. And, and that's the best you can do because you can't move your stove, but you can know that you've placed this mirror there with intention that you can actually see behind you. So, so that when you're cooking, you can be uh, what, well, you know, when you cook, you're creating alchemy, right? You're transforming something into nourishment for your body. And when you're stirring, like say you're stirring a pot of um, soup, right? You're actually kind of creating this magical alchemy and creating a magic spell and you could be stirring in positive chi, positive energy, or you could be stirring in more fear and anxiety if you can't see the door. So really you want to always kind of offer yourself the highest vibration. Yeah. And I don't cook often at, at all. I see really? baking. Yeah, I see you yeah, baking but a that's lot. Oven. <laughs> that's oven. But one of the main abundance go-tos with feng shui that even I know, well, I'm not going to say even, I feel like because of my friendship with you, I know probably more than the average person of, about feng shui, but I still, you know, scratch the surface, but I'm riveted by it and always want to know more. But I think a, a pretty well-known feng shui adjustment about abundance, you correct me if I say this improperly, but it's to use your stove and to turn use all the different burners, not just the same one. And I remember you teaching me that first thing in in 2014, because I used to always use the stove to heat up water with a teapot and I would just use the one burner and now I switch it up. But I honestly, like, like I said, I don't cook much. And my friend, Dr. Patty gave me this thing that I showed you and you were like, oh yeah, all, all Asian households have one of those, that thing I was oh, so right. proud of. Um, I don't even know what it's called. Hot water on demand. Like, does it have a name? Anyway, uh, hot water Kettle, ooh, hot water dispenser. It's not a kettle though. Yeah, it's like dispense. It's amazing. But because of that, I use my stove super rarely, which I don't know. Is that is that a bad thing? Well, so the idea is that your stove represents your resources, your wealth and resources. When you activate it by turning on your stove or using it, you activate your ability to work with your resources. So, so ideally, like there's something important I think about having some participation in nourishing yourself, like not always having someone cook for you or not always uh, not always eating out mm -hmm. possible, right? So maybe you use your stove, maybe instead of cooking, I mean, you, you do bake. How often do you bake? Pretty often. That's what I was hoping. I was like, does the oven count? But like, I, I yes. don't eat out very often. I never get takeout. I go out to dinner with friends, you know, from time to time, right. but I... I make myself food all the time. Yes. But I don't call it cooking. Like I make so, salad and stuff. Right. So you, I mean, I, do you ever heat up anything? 
See, that's a weird thing about me. Like I don't, you know, last night I did, like I made a egg situation, but I make myself pancakes every once in a while. But other than that, like I I eat a lot, a lot of tinned fish. I eat a lot of like toast. (laughs) I use the toaster. It's interesting how, yeah, I used to, I used to cook more, but. So as far as using the stove in terms of, um, Baking, I think baking totally counts because you're activating that fire energy and also cooking for yourself, assembling food is working. You're probably doing some of that near your stove too, but there is something important about that fire. So maybe that's also something for you to consider too, because I know you're really interested in, used to, used to really be interested in like the energetics of food. Like what is energetics of food when you only eat like cold foods, right? Mm-hmm. And you're not eating any warmed foods that are easier to digest is how is that on your body and so forth. And just mixing it up every now and then that's, that's really helpful. So having more diversity is really part of that as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you, it's not great. <laughs> I think we talked, I think we talked about this in, in the episode from the end of last year. Like I, because you were like, well, where do you eat your meals? Because we were talking about the relationships corner. Oh, I feel like I should give you some updates from maybe yeah, if we have time. I should like walk around with like the things you told me to do. Well, well, one of them is I have two tables and I have one little table in the relationships corner of mm-hmm. my apartment. And basically my apartment's an old school. My unit's an old classroom. And so it has these three really big to the ceiling windows and the far window that's in the kitchen, according to the Bagua map. Am I saying that correctly? Yes. Is the relationships corner for me. And so there's been a lot of drama in my relationships corner. One year you had little flies and then you also had that water dispenser that that was a pain in the ass. And then you, yeah, you, uh, but you really wanted it, but it didn't, it was so hard to keep up with. But you have that bistro table where it's just a table for two, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's right in that corner. And I don't know if you remember that. Well, about the water filter, it's the Walter water filter that if people want to know, but, um, or it's a, it's just a Berkey filter, but it's the, the ceramic container is the, it's called Walter. It's, it's made in New York, which is why it was so expensive to ship. And I do love it, but I had it in the relationships corner and I could never like get the filter primed. And it was like a whole thing. And you were like, why don't you move it out of that spot? And so I did that when as you instructed and then i also i recently though it was really kind of inconvenient having it where i had it so i moved it i found a new spot i found an alternative spot that works perfectly in the middle i'll show you it's like to the right of my sink but i just moved it there the other day and it's like excellent because it's right by the sink it's like such an upgrade it's so funny how this is kind of a tangent but it is so funny to me how i could just move one thing in my apartment and i come home and i'm like whole new me <laughs> like i it, it's it's truly wild. And I mean, granted, like when you came over this this winter or in December and we really made some like big changes of like got rid of a rug, moved my, you know, for a studio apartment, like basically the most you can change rooms, you know, of like moving my my bed and my couch to swap locations, moving this. Like I remember I, I probably said this in the intro of that episode, but like I was so moved by you and Jeremiah helping me move that stuff. First of all, it was just so nice of you. And then also like I equated it to like getting a new haircut. Like I just felt like a whole new person. Like my life was going to change. Like it was just incredible. But also like moving this water filter or like moving a lamp or just doing a really slight thing. Sometimes I'm I'm floored by like the impact that the the hit of dopamine that that can give me like do you do you know what i mean i'm sure you do in all the work that you've done with people yeah i mean 
I think it's, I think it is a huge thing to move things around. Like, first of all, I think most people can recognize that even moving into a new home is completely life-changing, right? Like changing your surroundings or moving to a different city or moving to a different country. That, that is pretty obvious. Everyone can acknowledge that their environment really affects them. And one thing I wrote about in my book is that even as a child, I like as a teenager and as a preteen, I once I got my own room, I would always re redo all the furniture in my room. And it's just one room, but I would like always move the, the bed here, the bed there, the desk here, the desk there, this poster here, this poster there. Like I spent so much of my time rearranging my room. And then I think at some point, like as I got older, someone said, like, oh, you rearrange your room, you rearrange your life. And I think it's so true. Small things make a big difference. Like small things can, small shifts in your home can make a big difference in your life in a practical way, but also in an energetic way. Yeah. Yeah. You say in the book that it serves as a symbol of our inner world, right? Like our exterior environment is a symbol of our inner world. And, yes. And it can be a container. This, these are your words, a container to give space to shape our experiences. And I've really been impacted by your work and how you see the world. And your understanding of feng shui has deepened over the years because of your spiritual practices, I think. And, and you say this in the book too, that your devotion to exploring Buddhist philosophy and meditation and then weaving those practices together has you know brought you so much joy and enrichment but you can also see it in your work with spaces and design and what i love about your work is it is so practical and people oriented and not just about beauty and i mean that's what feng shui is it's useful you know but but yeah i love something you say in yours feng shui is a meditation in action a dharma art so to speak can you talk about that yeah, I think one way that I approach feng shui that's different than maybe the everyday kind of point of view or maybe the stereotypical viewpoint on it is there's a few misconceptions. People think that feng shui is one simply about like painting your door red or something like that. People think it requires a lot of money. They're like, I need a lot. I need to buy a lot of new th things. And then they also think that it's interior design, which it isn't. It's really about looking the at the energetics of the space. So because I've brought together mindfulness practices and feng shui, I see feng shui as a meditative practice, as a, a mindfulness practice, because Feng shui is about noticing that we're not disconnected from our environments, that we're connected to each other, we're connected to our spaces, and that that when we make a change in ourselves, we affect other people. And when other people or changes happen outside of us, like in our homes, that affects us internally as well. And it can be as practical as like if we go back to your table in your relationship area, if you had a small table with only one chair, if you had a friend over, there would only be room for one, right? So it's very practical in that sense. Like, how do we start to see the practical, physical, earthly ways that our emotions and our energies play out in our spaces? And how can we 
weave them together instead of separating them. Like, you know, and I know a lot of what you do is thinking you, at least what you used to do is really bring together a lot about like how we can be embodied and how we can connect to our bodies and not be disconnected to our bodies. And it's the same with our homes. Like people can be very disconnected to our homes, but you have to have both. You have to connect the physical with the, the invisible. Listen, I, I'm a bar person and I don't mean the type that you go to with your friends, although I enjoy that as well. I eat a lot of bars. Uh, I do. I, I just, I really do. And listen, a lot of them contain a lot of artificial sugars that can, you know, wreck your digestion and make you have what my friend Christine calls bubble guts, meaning, you know, you're gassy. <laughs> and a lot of them can taste terrible <laughs> and have a lot of chemicals perhaps or just things you don't want but you know what there's one that's really really good and paleo valley makes it and listen it has collagen in it which can be really great for digestion and they taste incredible and listen they don't have much sugar they can help you feel a bit more calm and they can even help you sleep I keep them around in my bag. I share them with my friends. I, I really enjoy them a lot. And Paleo Valley has so many products. They make these beef sticks, to be honest with you, that my friend Dexter really, really loves. He like asked for more the other day. And I I think you'll you'll really like their products. They have so many. They have five flavors of these bars. They have many flavors of the beef sticks. And the ingredients in them are incredible and give you a lot of energy and keep you moving through your day. They are free from a lot of the things that you might want them to be free from, such as dairy or gluten. And you can learn more about the exacts of that if you just click a link and it'll tell you everything you need to know. What's what's really great is that I actually have a discount for you. If you go to paleovalley.com slash let it out, you can get 15% off your first order. So that's paleovalley.com slash let it out for 15% off your order. I like the apple cinnamon one a lot, but the pumpkin one was my favorite. And I want to know what you end up ordering and what you like. Thank you so much, Paleo Valley. One thing I love about you, and I think why we connect personally so much is that we love talking about the esoteric and mindfulness and meditation and having those conversations, but we also value, you know, I think it's no accident. We would always meet up at the Rubin museum, which is a museum about beauty as well as spirituality, as well as, you know, the practicality that we both, I think, value and the groundedness because we can, you know, go out there and, you know, we've been to Kundalini yoga classes together and we've done, you know, lots, we can talk about that stuff all day, but we can also level with each other and be like, oh yeah, this was like actually really hard. And this like, and I really appreciate that. Like, I, I think I just have a very low tolerance for bullshit of any kind, even if it's of the spiritual brand of like, well, you know, but love and light, like, I'm just like, I, I level with me here, you know? And, and that's something that I think feng shui itself does in a way. It's a very yes, practical, yeah. tactical bit that that I appreciate. And what I was going to say, going back to the reason why I brought up the the table in the relationships corner was when we were talking about food and my uh, lack of using my stove, I was thinking about an adjustment you gave me back then, which was you were like, so where do you eat? Like, where do you sit down and eat? And I was like, oh, 
I uh, eat standing up in my kitchen like uh, every day. (laughs) And you were like, spend some more time in that table and maybe eat there. And I have to say, I still spend most of my time. I still eat standing up in my kitchen more often than that I would like. (laughs) However, I that table is like ready to use. And I, I have sat there and eaten or read like once or twice. And I'm going to do it more now that we're having this conversation. Actually, my husband stands up eating a lot or he eats standing up a lot. How come you end up standing up at your kitchen while eating? Is it just because of the time thing or? I mean, this is probably a whole bigger issue that I need to work on. I mean, I know it is for sure, but it's like I will get really hungry and then I'll be like, and that's, I think, another reason why I don't cook. Like, I like cook. The only reason I bake is because I bake for other people. I bake birthday cakes for people. is like this, like, odd long-term performance art piece that I'm doing, basically. But cooking for one person, I, I know what I like, and I know it's easy, and I know what I can just, like, put together quickly. And I just kind of mm-hmm. eat that all the time. And so I'll be, like, really hungry, and I'll be, like, kind of preparing it and getting it together and, like, kind of snacking on it while I do. And then I'm just sort of, like, standing there eating which is not i'm not proud of this and and it's embarrassing but i'll be like too hungry when i start making the meal and Uh, then it's not really a meal it's like a oatmeal or you know whatever it is yeah well maybe it's more than about like using that relationship area to have a just sit and have like a cup of tea yeah totally and honestly like would be good for me to eat sitting down some (laughs) like i i do want to work on that and slow down with that a bit because I think that's something that would be beneficial (laughs) to me in many ways. Yeah. Cause you know, this is actually reminding me of one time when I, cause I worked with Sasha before I hired her for some nutrition counseling, like I think before you and I met even. And one thing she helped me recognize is sometimes I think I don't have enough time even to sit down and eat, but it only takes like five minutes or one minute to like sit down and eat. So it doesn't have to be a long time, but maybe it doesn't, maybe the, it doesn't have to be food. Maybe it's just spending time in that area. I think that's what part of it was about too, is encouraging you to use the relationship corner and enjoy it more rather than, you know, have it be only functional, which actually kind of ties into what we were talking about before, which is like, does it have to be useful or can you just do something that's not productive there? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's funny, I have my watercolors out there right now and something that oh. I want to watercolor. And I have been, that's the thing I did over there. I did some watercolor there. Like I made a card for someone. I like that. That's yeah. promising. That's yeah. very promising. All right. I'll keep that up. Well, speaking of Sasha, I pulled some of your friends and my friends for some questions for you. But before we get to that, I would love to know what your favorite part of this book was or was there a part that was really interesting for you writing or you researched something that has been useful to you or someone else i'm i would just love to know oh that's a good question no one's asked me that let me so what would be my favorite part of the book actually you know i really enjoyed writing the acknowledgments at the end which <laughs> but that's not really part of the book I like two parts, the beginning and the end. I like the introduction, which I wrote last. So I wrote the introduction after I had written the book, right? And it was um, much later. And I really enjoyed the introduction because 
I felt like it's such a it's it, it's such a departure from my last book and maybe a departure from the way that people view feng shui in general. And again, it, it does tie back to this theme that you brought up about having like an agenda necessarily. So I talk about in the introduction that this is my second book and the and my first book was written when I only felt confident enough or only felt like I had the ability to just give people things to do. And with more experience now and having gotten older and practiced a lot of meditation, I look at feng shui more as a non-doing practice that doesn't have to do with making any changes in your home, but simply like beginning to notice and recognize and attend to different parts of your life is when the shifts begin to occur. And those can be accompanied by something like moving something around, but really it doesn't have to just be about moving things around because so many people think like, oh, you know, feng shui, how should I, what should I fix in my home? Or, but sometimes there's nothing to fix. And sometimes moving something in your home doesn't fix things in your life. It needs, you know, it needs to be in tandem with doing inner work as well. So I really enjoyed the introduction. And then the last part of my book, it's titled Ichigo Ichii, which is a Japanese saying that I learned in my tea ceremony class. And it means one time, one meeting. And I actually learned this phrase when I was in tea ceremony class and someone that a classmate, we had found out that one of our classmates had died. Oh my God. And he was, I know he was younger than me. And it was just a shock because I was like, whatever happened to Rudy? And I was thinking about that. Then I looked in the library and I saw there was an announcement for his, it was an obituary. And it turns out I didn't even know this. He was a Jesuit priest. And I went home and I looked up like he had um, done so many amazing things. And we never, we we still don't know exactly how he died or anything. But but my classmates said, you know, Ichigo, Ichigo Ichi, that every moment is precious, that death can come really quickly. But at the same time, you know, in tea ceremony class, you make one cup of matcha and you drink like someone else makes you a cup of matcha too and you drink it. But it's so simple and other people have asked me, like, what do you do in tea ceremony class? Do you like have a different tea each time? It's like, no, you just do some, this really simple ceremony each time over and over and over again. But each time is very special and unique. So, you know, even though we've done so many podcasts, each time is different and each moment is unique and each experience is very precious. So I think that that's a really important part of the book, too. I think that we... um can find a lot of value in the most ordinary everyday things and appreciate every moment. Yeah. Wow. That's beautiful and kind of heavy. And I feel like there might be some overlaps between tea class and tea ceremonies and, and podcasting. And I'm sure not in some ways, but in the fact that you're doing one thing and you're present and you're not on your phone, which I find to be one of the most simple yet best parts of this i think mm -hmm. yes because even in regular conversation with friends it's so easy to get distracted by a text message or some activity you need to do but how can we just really just be present so actually podcasting is really wonderful in that way that at least when you're participating in the podcast i don't know about the listeners because they can start and stop but we we we're here simply only to talk and have a conversation yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of the thing, right? Like podcast consuming is by nature 
multitasking. You know, it's having company while you're cooking or doing the dishes or folding laundry or on a walk or driving. I think that's typically how it's consumed. And very rarely do I just, or ever do I just sit down and I'm like, just there with my friends. Like that meme, that's like the the person sitting in front of the photo of like the other people talking, you know, like usually I'm doing other things while I'm listening, but as a podcast maker, (laughs) recorder, what I love about this is that when we are doing it, I am fully there. And I was just talking about this with the last guest, my friend Sam, about how it was one of our first or one of our longest conversations of just him and I, like I've seen him a bunch at the coffee shop. We've had several conversations, just him and I in the back of the coffee shop, but most of our conversations have been in a group of people or on the street or whatever. And him coming over here, having this microphone between us went to a lot of places that it probably wouldn't have, you know? And, And I asked a lot of questions that I probably wouldn't have if we were in a big group. And, and, and I think it's also, it's the presence part, like I'm saying, but it's also time. Like we're giving ourselves time. And when someone has to go or there's a rush or we don't know, you know, I think that's when things um, get fragmented. And there's like a beauty to that too, like the creative constraint of like being out and among people. But I, you know, there's something about walking with a friend or on a road trip with a friend or someone like when I, I remember when, when Nick and I would go on road trips or like we, he drove me to New York when I moved and the conversations that we had during that trip across the country or not really across the country, but across several States (laughs) were so impactful, you know, because we're kind of trapped. We're facing the same direction. There's something about, yeah, it's kind of like being in a little recording studio. Hmm. That it, you know, that's that's such an interesting thing to think about. And it might be interesting also for the podcast listeners to think about how it's so different to be like on the podcast on like creating a podcast versus listening. Cause you know, actually I don't really listen to very many I don't listen to any podcasts regularly. I only make up my own podcast. I don't know. Do you listen to a lot of podcasts? Yeah. I, a ton. Okay. I don't watch TV and I don't watch enough movies, but I listen to podcasts all the time. Do you listen? I have a question. Do you listen to your own podcasts? To edit. So yeah, you're going to laugh. But if I listen to a podcast, it's usually I listen to my to myself. I was I've been on a quite a few podcasts recently. But even my own podcast, I'll listen to it because I think it's very powerful to listen to your own voice as well. But I want to see like, what did I say? Because I've gotten past the part of like, you know how most people I mean, you're probably over this too, because you've heard your own voice so many times. Mm -hmm. Like you don't, you don't cringe at your own voice. You're just like, Oh, that's my voice. It's very neutral. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's very neutral, but I want to hear what I say because I'm always surprised. I'm like, did I say that? Like I look at like quotes that I've given to people for press and I was like, oh, that sounds really good. Did I, did I say that? Did I write that? And I'm always amazed at things that come out of my mouth or things that I write. And so I'm curious to listen back and see what happened because it's also like that Ichigo Ichi, like this one time, like, cause we're not, this is unscripted, right? We're not reading or reciting or memorizing anything. We're just talking off the cuff. So it's it's always interesting to look back and see how that collaboration like unfolded and how that it's like an it's like improvised music like jazz like how what happened what what unfolded and what unfolded in that moment and and what chemistry happened what chemistry didn't happen it's so interesting to 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 listen to it again 
Yeah, it's a little time capsule. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, all right. Before I ask you all of these questions from your fans, <laughs> tell me, you know, what's something that you've learned either recently or just, you know, that you're thinking of? Well, I have two questions for you. One, something that you've been learning recently or contemplating because similar to what you said to me, you seem more grounded than when I saw you in December. Um, yeah, I am. I, well, I wasn't doing so well. I don't know if I told, no, I did tell you. So, well, you know, another reason why we have a lot to talk about, I think is because we both, well, we go through a lot of the same things. Like we, I remember when I got my first book offer, I asked you like, what do you think about this? And we could mm -hmm. talk about those practical, we could talk about the creative part of it, but we could also talk about the practical part of it. And then, um, we, uh, this year has been really crazy. Like with the book, I over my book and my work, I overbooked myself and I had two accidents. I, I think I told you how that I fell. Yeah. And yeah, you did the takeover I, during that. You took over, let it out to Instagram <laughs> and you had a, you had, I had stitches. A on my, yeah, yeah. I had stitches and band, bandages on my forehead. So it's so funny because I did so a lot of press during that time. And there's like pictures, <laughs> there's just like all these like podcasts of me with like a bandage on my forehead and um so i fell and now i have a scar on my forehead and um i also five weeks after that i fell again and sprained my ankle so the beginning oh of the gosh. year i know the beginning of the year was like i got very clear messages from the universe that it is uh, very important for me to slow down and that i was um really depleting my life energy so so i have been making big efforts to slow down so that's actually ties into what I've been learning recently. So I feel a lot better because I've said no to a lot of things and it's finally now um, I'm finally feeling the effects of saying no to a lot of things. And, and I went on retreat recently where for once like here, and this also ties back to what you're talking about for what, like usually I go to retreats and I volunteer for something. I'm like, Oh, I'm a, I'm the coordinator or I'm the person running the retreat or I'm co-teaching or something. So this time I just like was a participant and it was so wonderful and relaxing. And something that came up in that was the idea of living more sustainably, but not just in terms of like green living, but how do I, how do I live my life more sustainably? Because I am always kind of, I've always kind of put myself out there in a way that I feel like I'm giving a lot, but, but um, I'm radiating a lot. I'm offering a lot and it's only one way. And it's not sustainable. It's yeah. not, it's totally exhausting when you're the one always giving. But part of my, um, part of the shift that I am working on now is to one, realize that imbalance, but two, to realize that imbalance is based on my perception and that I always have the ability to receive as much as I give. And so, how do I set myself up to have a more sustainable life in an energetic sense? Because I am, I was completely depleted. And I think you were too. I think you and I were like, our eyes were like glazed over last time we saw each other because <laughs> we were just so depleted because it's always like, I'm always giving, 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 but I need to, I need to change that. It's, um, I need to change that perspective and see that the world has so much more to give me as well. And how do I shift my perspective and how do I shift the way I do things in order to um, also be enriched as much as I enrich others? Yeah. And it's hard to it's hard to do that, but I'm so happy that you've made that shift. Um, well, I'm starting to. 
Yeah, well, are in process with it. I think it's a constant process, like everything. Mm-hmm. One, one more thing before the part of the program asking for a friend. <laughs> in this book, there's so much, right? Like there's, you talk about your bedroom, you talk about yin and yang, you talk about every room of the house and you talk about letting go. I mean, there's just, there's so much in here. Thinking about the session we did here, is there anything from the book other than, you know, kind of your, I feel like this book is is your greatest hits. That's kind of what I thought it was going to be. But the more time I've spent with it, I'm like, dude, there's so much new information in here that Angie hasn't even given me before, you know, like this is really, it's really in- incredible. So is there anything that is in the book that you think, you know, for someone who lives alone, single. You have a whole podcast episode I, I listened to recently where I was going to tell, the, I was going to text you this, that was about feng shui tips for if you're single. And I, I'll link to that. People, if they are wanting to listen to that, can lis- listen to that. But you you and your business partner and co-host of the podcast, Laura, were talking about it. And there's a portion where Laura like pretends to be her younger yeah. self who is single. And I was like, uh-huh. Angie, why didn't you call me? You, you've got you've got <laughs> someone right here who you can troubleshoot this with. But but anyway, you know what you're you're working with here. Is there anything from the book that I should think about or or add in? You know what? Let me let me subconsciously noodle on that and then okay. we'll we will we'll, we'll revert back to that. Yeah. We'll do no we'll do it at the end. Okay, great. All right, let's do some of the questions from your fans. So let's see here. I have one from Sasha. And we talk about how you met Sasha. So Sasha is my very close friend. She was the the last guest on the podcast. She comes on every year and interviews me for my birthday. And she's how I met Angie. And Angie tells how they met in the last episode where you were on that we mentioned earlier. So, so this is what Sasha says. I met Angie at the CSA in the Lower East Side a number of years ago. And it's been incredible and beautiful to observe her growth, evolution, and success, which clearly comes from a compassionate place. I wonder, can she pinpoint any particular springboards into success or was it a series of baby steps plugging away? Oh, no, there was definitely a big springboard into a shift. It was when I uh, got laid off in 2009 during the last recession. and. I had always wanted to study feng shui and take this feng shui certification program that I ended up taking. It was a three-year program, but I never, up until then, I had every excuse. I was like, oh no, I'm never going to use this. I didn't want to like, I didn't want to be a feng shui consultant. I didn't want to um, do it professionally. I couldn't, I was like, I can't afford it. I don't have the time. And I know it never occurred to me that I could do something that would be just back to our theme, just to, that didn't have a, direct productive reason to do it. And so then I got laid off and I couldn't get a job if I wanted to, right? So and I tried. I was applying to lots of jobs. So then I decided, you know what? I'm gonna just take this feng shui certification program. I'm on um unemployment. I could use my use my savings and I've always wanted to do it. So the first time, really the first time in my life where I um made a decision to do something simply because I wanted to and it brought me joy and it would be fun. That's that was the turning point. And after mm-hmm. I did that, everything else fell into place. Like like people I I got my architect's license, people started calling me for work, 
Um, I accidentally, like, I didn't want to start my own business, but I just did. It just happened. And I started getting all these different opportunities. I started, I, I had mentors. I never had mentors in my life. And I learned all about the magic of feng shui. So basically, I would say the turning point was that moment that I decided to do something for me that didn't have to have any kind of productive reason for it, that I just simply wanted to do it because it made my heart sing. Mm, I love that. God, should I go to feng shui school? Because now you have a school. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought about it for years. I, I I know I've talked to you about it before, but yeah, should I go talk talk about it and and t- and tell me what you think? Because <laughs> it's this is a good opportunity for you to tell people about it. Well, usually we tell people that you know they that's their decision to make because you'll know most people know right away they're like oh like i they're like i want to do this there's a point when you just decide that this is what i want to do and and that's the right moment so it should be really something that you decide to do in your in your heart but really i think that the most important thing about our feng shui certification program is a lot of people go in thinking oh this is going to be really easy i already know everything but in reality it's a whole life transforming experience for most of our graduates. Mm. I totally understand why. Okay. One more part to that question. So another um, big transformative time was after I had started my business, I was completely like overwhelmed and tired because I was running my own business and I was freelancing for someone. And I was probably as exhausted as I was close to almost, almost as exhausted as I was this earlier this year, but um, I mean, I was really, really overwhelmed and depleted. I went to this business coaching, like a women's coaching um, event. And I met this woman who um, I actually just uh, saw her a couple of days ago. Her name is Angela Gia Kim. And she asked, you know, asked us what our pain points were. And mine was, I was like, you know, I'm just so exhausted. I'm so overwhelmed. I have this, like, I have my business and it's doing well, but I also have like, I have this freelance job and I'm making so much money. And I don't want to quit. I'm scared to quit the freelance job. And so what came up was basically that I asked myself, what's the worst thing that could happen? You know, if I quit my freelance job, right? Mm -hmm. So I thought about it. Okay, if I quit this freelance job and I don't get enough work for my business, what's the worst thing that could happen? So the worst thing that could happen is I don't get enough work and then I have to get a freelance job. So then I realized I had been living like with this pain and suffering and overwhelm and overwork a hundred percent out of fear because I was I was living my worst case scenario. I was living my worst case scenario because I was scared. But I knew from my historically, like if if something happened and I couldn't get enough work, I would just get another freelance job. That's easy. That's really easy to do. And so the next day I quit, I gave six weeks notice to that, the designer that I was freelancing for, and then I never looked back. So, so it's really helpful, I think, for people to start to see like, am I doing things out of fear? And, and what's the worst thing that could happen if I just tried, tried, because we always have the option to go back to how we were, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think playing out your worst case scenario, or sometimes I, I do this exercise, I think it might be in my book, or I've given this at workshops that I've done journaling wise, where I call it, I think it, I don't think I, I know I didn't make this up. I know this is like a fierce, fear setting is just like a journaling exercise that people do, but it's kind of dark and bleak and you have to be ready for it. But like writing out your worst case scenario, like really writing it out 
factually of what it not factually because it's not true it, or it hasn't happened but writing out honestly like what is realistic that's the word i'm trying to think of realistic being realistic mm-hmm. about what could happen and just mm-hmm. writing all that out your worst fears all of it even if it's like not your favorite you're not sitting with it you know it's 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 let out of your brain so you can it takes its power away a little bit yeah absolutely Okay, so several more questions. So we'll do these sort of rapid fire. But this is a great one from my really close friend, Christine. She says, do you have any advice for someone who loves to constantly change things around the house and switch things up, but their partner is against change, even if these changes are temporary? I should mention their partner lives with them, moved in recently. I guess what I'm asking is, how do I make changes around the house while considering the familiarity importance for my partner? Okay. Yeah. This is a, I get a variation on this question a lot. So basically, it's uh, when you have a partnership, there's a lot of compromise. And so I usually get a question saying, like, my, my partner likes things this way and I like things that way. So, and how do you work with that? I think the key there is that a relationship is compromised. So one consideration that you've told me about this particular person is that their partner moved in with them. Yes. That's the way I see it. Okay. Well, that so that's an interesting thing too, because then it's kind of like her space that they've come into. Yeah. She lived there before him for several years. Yeah. So that's also hard to accommodate to accommodate someone else. So I think for Christine, which might be not be the same for every other s- situation, is um, that in order to have a successful and compassionate partnership, there needs to be compromise. So she may like to have, have done things a particular way when she lived on her without without her partner, but it's important to create a space for your partner to feel like this is their home as well. So it may be about like creating, giving or offering her partner a space that's his alone that she doesn't change around and, and having conversations with that. And, or when she does want to change something to ask for permission, because some, it's easy to not ask for permission because you feel like this is my space because she's, it's been her space, but it's so important. I think for where we are now in our society to ask for consent and ask for permission. And that when one does that, it opens up a conversation. And so maybe her partner would be okay with moving things around if she said, like, if she asked. It's just like if I said, hey, Katie, would you want to do, you know, if I just did something versus asking you if you wanted to do it, right? Mm-hmm. It's It creates a, a softer relationship. And then there can also be places where those places are just hers and she has free reign to move things as, around as much as she wants. So um, I think there's a lot about like discussion, carving out a space for her partner to have his own place that he doesn't, that she doesn't touch and her having the same. So having your own safe space that you can rely on that stability and her stability is relying on things moving around and maybe his stability is relying on things not moving around, but having a place for both of those to exist in the same home. It's wild because something that I, I always bring up that you you told me of, you know, when when I lived in the East Village, I lived with a roommate and she had been there for a very long time. And you said, you know, you're like, well, yeah, when you're in, when you've been single and lived by yourself a really long time, you get more rigid and stuck in your ways because when you're in a relationship and I was at the time, 
you constantly have to be nice all the time and compromising. And I really have been thinking about that. It kind of just sort of washed over me in, in that context because I was in a relationship at the time. But since, and since living alone, which I hadn't done for a really long time until I moved here, it I do worry about that if I... I've never lived with a partner full time, but if I ever did, I think that would be really challenging for me because I have control issues, but also like I just, um, I, I I think Tate, like someone's aesthetic taste too, like if it was super unaligned with mine, like I don't, that would be, it's, I sound like an asshole, but like that would be challenging for me. And I think I also like, I'm like Christine, I move stuff around all the time. And I like the autonomy of that, especially in my space. And I'm very spatially oriented. One of my best friends is a feng shui consultant and interior designer, architect, book writer, you. So I just have a propensity to that. And, you know, maybe it's just a matter of communication, but and learning and, you know, I think it would, it would be good, but I can see it being, I can see myself asking that exact same question. And I, you know, like to Christine's credit, like, I, I don't know how she does it. Like she's doing great, but that would be really challenging for me. Well, I, I do see, I do work with people in their homes a lot and a lot of couples. And generally, it does often shake out a little bit where one person, one person takes the lead on it. So maybe, maybe Christine takes the lead on, on how the home is shaped or you with your future partner, you'll take the lead on how the home is shaped. But again, giving them a place to, to, have the width the, the way they want things like you know like jeremiah has his like man cave slash office slash you know clo- he has his own closet he can do it his he, he can organize it his own way and then i kind of like take care of curating everything else and that's usually how things shake out eventually like someone kind of there needs to be a little bit of a hierarchy and um and i think for in general like it, it's okay it, it, most of the time people aren't butting heads too much. I mean, like I butt heads with my husband about like, you know, like, oh, I wish she would have loaded the dishwasher in this way, but it's not really that important. Right. So, Mm -hmm. so I think in the general, like you don't have to worry too much. It'll shake out. But I think as long as like her partner has a a space to call his own and she has a space that she can be the, she can be the queen of her space. He could be the king of his space. Little, little things like that are important. Just like you think about like when we grew up, with our families, right? With our parents, you had your room. Like, so your mom was in control of the whole house, but you, as long as you could be in control of your room, wasn't, didn't that feel safe? Yeah, I was only to some extent, but yes. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean like that, that to me, like I could always go back to my room and that, and for the most part, that was like where I wanted to be. Cause it was my room and I could do what I want, wanted with it at, to some degree. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that was great. Thank you. And excellent question. Okay. A, a couple more. The, these ones are good and, and, and varied. Um, but the, these come from my really good friend, Crystal, who made a cameo in our last podcast where I like played a text from her. Do you remember that? Mm, yeah. Yeah. And she listened. Okay. She says, tell us about a historical moment in time that you are drawn to or find interesting. That's a good question. I think I have to think about that and come back, come okay, back to th- it. Yeah, th- think of it. And I, I'll ask you another one. What okay. is an architectural marvel that we should try to see in person? I really love Japan. 
And I was there just before the pandemic in February 2020. And I would say, I don't know if I had a particularly favorite place, but Kyoto, like all of the architecture there, I think was just breathtaking and amazing. And, um, and just being in that country in that setting was something I think uh, really resonated with me. And I would say like one should um, definitely go, go visit the architecture in Kyoto. Mm, I, as you know, Japan is like one of the number one places I really want to go. Oh, you haven't been? Never been. Oh no, you have to go. I know. I want to so much. It's like, it, it not like it is my number one place that I want to go. Well, that's that was something I re- I'm just remembering when you were with Nick and we were at your apartment. You you guys were like, we just wanted we want to go travel to Japan specifically. That was our plan. Um, <laughs> Never happened, but um, well, I don't know. Maybe it did happen for him, <laughs> but it hasn't happened for me yet. Yeah. But it will. Yeah, I I really 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 would love to go. I mean, there's so many places, but that's definitely number one. Okay, she also asks, what role, if any, does composting play in feng shui? I, t- I actually talk about composting a bit in my book in the sense that I think that feng shui, the philosophy of feng shui and my approach to it as a mindfulness practice that we're interconnected and interdependent with our spaces and that we're connected to all living beings, all sentient beings, because that's the underlying foundation of the way that I practice feng shui, it leads us to take responsibility for what we put out in the world whether that means like we when we say something to take responsibility for that word that we put out into the universe that vibration or if it's something that we purchase doing our best to purchase the highest quality the most ethically produced objects or things in our life to the best of our ability doing the best we can with what we have that also would trickle into taking responsibility and recognizing and being mindful about the way that we consume and what we leave behind. And so one thing my teacher, um, one of my teachers always reminds us is a Zen adage that says, leave things as if you were never here in the first place. So that w- one way to do that is to compost, right? To, to recognize all of the uh, things that we leave behind. But it can also go as far as to think about like, what is the clutter that we leave behind? Like, what is the clutter that we leave behind when we die? You know, as our, as a lot of people now I know are starting to caretake for their aging parents, like that's a question that starts to come up as well. Like, what are you going to leave behind when you die? Who's going to clean up after you? But also in a very uh, simple way, like how do, like even like when you, um, like, so I live in New York City in an apartment in a co-op and, you know, we get our boxes for deliveries, but like, do we, um, we could just bring the boxes down and just throw them downstairs for the porter to, to put into the recycling or you could, be kind and like maybe break down the boxes, put them down in a nice way. Like, what are you leaving behind? Like maybe mm-hmm. that porter is going to have a really bad day because he has a ton of boxes and he has to break them all down by himself every weekend. Like, what are the ways that we affect other people? And, and again, what, how are we leaving things? Are we leaving things as if we were never there or are we leaving so much 
work for other people to clean up. Yeah. Yeah. That sentiment of leave things better than you found them, I think is really, if I had to pick like one guiding principle of my life, it's that, or I I try so hard. I'm not perfect at it, of course, but leave people better than you found them, leave places better than you found them. I'm I'm very hyper aware of that. Like even when I work at the shop, I I'm only there one day a week and I'm like, I want it to be pristine when my my friend Brie, who's actually the editor of this podcast, she works after she works Saturday mornings. I work Friday nights. And I always try to make it like fully stocked, fully cleaned, fully like really give it my all, regardless of if I have to be somewhere or go to a concert or tired I am. And I try to do that too. And I, I'm, I'm trying to be hyper aware of that when I'm, you know, at a restaurant even, or like with people too, of like, did I, you know, I, I think so much about that quote, that's kind of a bumper sticker and the Maya Angelou one where she says, you know, people don't remember what you did or what you said. They remember how you made them feel. And mm-hmm. I just really try to make people feel better than they did before I got there, you know, or like ideally, but if not, just like not worse, you know, like I don't want to bring people down. I, and of course, none of that's in my control. Like I could be trying to be trying so hard to make them feel better and trying so hard to be cheerful, but whatever I did was just off putting or like, you know, like I have no idea. We can't control how people perceive us, of course, but I don't know. I, I just find that really moving to like do no harm, you know, is also kind of a, not a similar way to say that. Yeah, exactly. But there's also something important about like, as if you were never there in the per- first place, that also takes like, that takes the ego out of it, that takes Angie out of it, that takes Katie out of it. And, and um, recognizing that we don't even have to leave it better. It was already, it was perfect without us. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Wow. Excellent. Excellent question. Excellent answer. You have a whole episode about the nine star key. And I I haven't spent enough time with your book yet to know. Is it in your, is the nine star key in your book too? No, it's not in my book. Well, you have a whole podcast episode about it, which I'll let people listen to. But if you had to just give like a one sentence about what it, I just thought it was really cool. And I, I don't think I've done it unless you've done it for me. Maybe you have. I have. Well, um, so basically the nine star key is a numerology that we use in feng shui. And it's um, something I teach my students because it's super helpful actually for them to learn the I Ching, or sorry, not the I Ching, sorry, learn the five elements to learn the Bagua. There's there's a lot that they can pick up from learning the nine star key. And, and a lot of my students tend to feel really connected to it because you can learn about your own energy. And the energy about uh, with people around you, so it's a, it's a form of astrology. So, like, I think you're a one water or a nine fire, but I forget when. What year are you born again? 1990. Okay, so let me just add it up again. Ten, ten. Oh yeah, you're a one water. Okay, basically, like you can kind of get a sense of someone's basic nature, their basic elemental nature by by calculating their nine star key. So you are one water. One water people are called like the philosophers. They love to really learn, like they're forever learners. They always want to study more and more. They're um, researching. And water also has like two aspects to it. Water can be very still, like the ocean and have a lot of depth to it. So there's a quality of wisdom. 
that is cultivated by one water people. But also there's this other side, which is like a rushing river, meaning that you can really connect and and um, connect to people. Just like if you think about um, the earth is connected, the earth is really like a water with land in it, right? So the water connects all of us and water moves very quickly. So water also has a tendency to move downward, like it's always searching to go down, right? And it's always moving downward. So there's a tendency to have like depression as well, but also there's a flexibility to water. Like water always takes the shape of whatever contains, whatever it's uh, contained. And so there's a lot of flexibility and flow, but also this like, there is this tendency to, to have some darkness because you understand there's darkness to life. And then the other aspect of nine star key. So, so one, you can figure out what, if you go to that um, blog post or that podcast, you can, we give instructions on how to calculate your nine star key. You can also see what year you're in right now. So you can understand kind of the quality of the year. So like this year, Katie, you're in a two year. So you're in a year of germination. You're in a year of planting seeds and kind of sowing, cultivating the soil right now. So it's not a year of a lot of things happening. But it's a year of like putting a lot of things, put, planting a lot of seeds. Like you would never just, if you wanted to plant a garden, you wouldn't just put like one seed, right? You would put many seeds and germinate many seeds. So you're in this like starting phase of germinating where it's still quiet. But next year, you're going to be actually in a year of, of things beginning to sprout. Like all the seeds that you plant this year will begin to sprout and push out of the ground next year. So so those are some some other ways that one can use the nine star key. Ooh, I love that. Did you plan the release of your book around things that you learned from your nine star key? I did not. However, you know, actually I'm doing this business class for my student, my graduates. We added this new component to our certification program where we added a self-study five module. Um, we call it like a feng shui business launch package. And we, one of the exercises is to look at your five-year vision and as part of that, we encourage people to look at like what um, what is the quality of the year that they're going into. So, like for me, I'm I'm in a year of actually this is a year of celebration for me. It's kind of like the harvest. You've harvested everything, and now you can like celebrate and kind of enjoy yourself a little bit. So that's nice. And then next year, I'll be moving into a quiet year where I'm like basically very um, much more on top of like on top of a mountain on my own, like pretty independent and things are a little bit more slow and contemplative. So you can absolutely like kind of plan things around it. Like for instance, like people who are nine, they're number nine, like this year is a really good year to start something new because they're in the house of fire. But, um, but yeah, you can absolutely kind of plan things, but I look at, look at it more as a way to understand the chi, the chi or the life force energy of the year. I think it does make sense. So I wrote, my book in when I was in the year of prosperity, where it was about kind of coming into um, being recognized for my skills and all the hard work that I've done. Well, that's really cool. Do you have any insights on those other elements that those other questions that I asked earlier that have come to you maybe? You know, I'm not like a big history person, but the only thing I would I thought of was, you know, I have my Dharma teachers and I have my feng shui teachers and my Dharma teachers, their teacher. So my root teacher is Chogam Trungpa Rinpoche. And 
I don't know if there's a particular moment in time that I would have wanted to be present, but I would have, I think I would have really enjoyed having met him and practiced with him. And, and uh, it's interesting because I feel like my teachers talk about their teachers in a way that I don't think it exists anymore. I don't know if you've, you've noticed this, but you know, there's so many, I think it's Thich Nhat Hanh and even maybe the Dalai Lama that said like the next Buddha will be the community, will be community. Yeah. And yeah. So it's, I don't see particular people embodying an enlightenment or some kind of embodying so much um, clarity I, I can see people, I see people in a guru seat, but I see a lot, I always see their flaws as well. I can appreciate their expertise. I can appreciate their compassion. I can appreciate like what they're offering, but at the same time, I see them as completely human. So I think that there is something about Chogum Trungpa when I look at his, um, all the, all the teachings that he's offered, all the ways that my, my teachers have shifted their lives and embody their practice they i mean they walk the walk and and all of the amazing um teachings that he's offered the world so i i would have loved to have experienced that in person mm, i really like that and you know i think you also walk the walk and i really admire that about you Thank you. And the other, the last question, mm -hmm. which was the first question was if so, I think it was basically, is there anything in the book in Mindful Homes that I would suggest you explore a bit more with your own functionality? Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I, I have one for you. So um, I put together something really fun in the book. I think a lot of people really like it's a diagram that looks at the bagua on on the bed. So if you have you have the book there, so it's page ninety two, and I'm opening I, it now. Okay, I really like this because a lot of people get really stuck and they're like, I don't know how to lay the bagua, and then they like just stop. And I just don't. I feel like that's not very helpful for anyone. So um, I wanted to offer something that everyone could use. So you can lay the bagua and the bagua is like a feng shui mandala. You can lay it on your bed and almost everybody, I think everybody, but not every, almost everyone, I would say 99.9% .9 of the people that will read this book will have a rectangularly shaped bed. So they will be able to figure out how to easily divide their bed into a three by three grid and lay the bagua on it. And then there's this lovely illustration that my publisher, the, the um, art director created with um, the image of a bed in the background with the bagua overlaid on it. So then each area of the bagua, I offered a way to activate it. So, but I don't know which one you should activate. So that's where you come in. Well, I'm excited to, I mean, I'm looking at all these and they all seem relevant. So I'll, I'll maybe just pick the one I'm most drawn to. Yeah, that would help. Yeah, that that that's a very helpful way, practical way and um, actually very pointed way to to do it because i i don't recommend you do all of them just pick one so which one are you attracted to well actually you know what we could do what's the what's your wish for yourself which i always ask you i think my wishes are the same i think last time i said like to be doing my what i'm doing with like less fear and worry to eventually have a life partner mm -hmm. and and less fear and worry about money and i don't remember what the third one was i think that's it i think i'm all set with two <laughs> So I think it would be that purple area. So if you are, so for abundance, prosperity, wealth. Yes. 
So, which is the same area we talked about in the last podcast. Mm -hmm. So basically you would stand at the foot of your bed and the top left corner is the abundance, prosperity, and wealth area. And the challenge is to really think about abundance and prosperity and wealth beyond just financial wealth. I mean, they are tied together, but but really this exercise is about creating a wish for yourself, Katie, that you recognize your true value, that you recognize that you are a treasure. So in the book, the, the invitation is to take 108 coins, for instance, 108 quarters, which is going to be kind of hard to get because aren't we having like a coin shortage or something right now? <laughs> or we were during the pandemic. And you take 108 coins, or you could even get 108 like $1 coins or one euro coins or whatever a coin is. And then you seal them in a purple envelope with the wish that you recognize your true value. And then you place this in that area of your bed. So like under the mattress. I love that. I mean, I'm I'm all in. <laughs> You're all in? Okay. Thank you so much. I'm I'm gonna get the coins. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that. <laughs> and and honestly, thank you for everything you shared here. And this book is incredible. And I'm just so grateful for you and our friendship and everything you've shared with me over the past several years and today. And congrats on the new book. I'm I'm so stoked for you. Thank you. And I can't wait to for you to have your next book too. <laughs> what do I have to do feng shui wise for that? Just my same exercise? <laughs> well, you have to decide if you want to do another book. Yeah, that's true. Well, all right. And then I'll we'll sleep talk. On that. Okay. We'll, we'll right. talk. Well, that'll be one of your wishes next time. Okay. Well, I love you. Is there anything else that you want to let out? No, but thank you so much. You know, I think one of the things that I talked about, like have looking at things more sustainably and how it's not always me having to put things out, like putting out, uh, you know, having the second book and reaching out to people like you and other friends that I've made over the years, like it's been really heartening to, to really be supported by the community. Like, you know, we've made like all these friends through, I don't know, the wellness world, I guess. And people have showed up and people have supported me. And, and I really appreciate you taking the time to, to bring me on the podcast to support my book. Cause all of these things matter so much. And and it's helping me to learn again, like how to make my life more sustainable, make my chi, my energy more sustainable, that I do have people that care about me and support me. And we're all going to support each other. I love that so much. Well, thank you. And I'm I'm so, so grateful. And yeah, I guess we let out our, our deep breath together now, right? Yep. Yep. And I'm glad we're both more relaxed. Until next time. I know. I hope we even are more relaxed next time. Yes, we'll see what happens. Okay, inhale. Let it out. <sighs> Love you, Angie. Thank you so much. Love you too. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Angie's book, Mindful Homes, is out now. Get yourself a hard copy. And again, I am so grateful that you're here listening. Like I said at the top, so many options podcast-wise. Really grateful that you're spending time here listening to this one. And if you want more where this comes from, dive into the archives. If you happen to be new here, there are several more with Angie and several more just in general. So feel free to peek around. And I also write a newsletter called the Let It Out Letter where you can get 
essays and lists of things I love and show notes to these episodes emailed to you. The link to sign up for that will be in the show notes. Last week's episode was Sam Burton. If you haven't listened to that one, go back and listen. It was one of my favorites from this year for sure. And we're taking next week off, but we will be back really soon. And my other podcast that I co-host with Serena Wolf will be returning this fall as it always does. But before we record season five, Serena and I are going to be doing a Q&A episode. And if you don't know what Spiraling is, it's an anxiety podcast, a mental health podcast that was just featured in Wired Magazine, which is very cool. We were on a list of mental health podcasts. And if you have a question that you would like to submit for that, or if you'd like to listen to that podcast, I will also link it below. And, you know, if you like this podcast in general, share it with a friend and, you know, you can always leave a review on iTunes, the stars, or on Spotify. It it genuinely does help so much. And of course, supporting the sponsors really, really does. If you have any questions about anything at all, I even made a store where you can purchase things that I've recommended on this show. If you want to find out about that, I'll, I'll link it. All of this is in the show notes. This is just my time to give you all the announcements that I usually give right now. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Angie and thank you to our editor, Brianna Bain. She's incredible and just ran a half marathon. And hopefully we'll be returning to the show soon. And if you want to hear my conversation with her, go back on into those archives that I was talking to you about. She's been on the show before and she'll be on the show again. All right. Until two weeks from now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.